the Frontier Psychiatrist podcast. I'm Jeremy Fox. I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia, specializing in trauma treatment, PTSD, using EMDR therapy and other modalities. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I think a lot, and we've talked many times about getting anyone to get help. There's endless debates among therapists and helpers about the help that they provide. We've thought together about the people who aren't getting the help. What does that look like? Why aren't they getting the help? And and how might we create systems that got people to help that, that worked? And that's what I wanted to think through with you today. Absolutely. We've both worked before. <laughs> before. Yes. Uh, and, and most of the benefits in, in the U.S. For, for healthcare are through employers. So a lot of workplace culture, I would argue, goes into how anybody gets help for uh, a mental health condition. And I know you are a trauma specialist. How many patients who, who come to you with their workplace paying for the care? It's, you know what? It, it's a huge degree of people who have insurance through their work. So the vast majority of folks seeing you are doing so because their work provides them with a health insurance that will cover the care you provide. Right. Have you worked uh, with folks getting care through an employee assistance program? Question mark. Yes, I have. And I do. So that's been a significantly lower proportion of my clients. Maybe define what you understand an employee assistance program to be. Yeah, absolutely. An EAP, employee assistance program, is usually a time-limited number of sessions, five or six, usually in that ballpark, for psychotherapy that are totally paid for. And one of the benefits of it is you, they're from the get-go, from the jump, paid for, whatever the diagnosis, even if you need a diagnosis, from my understanding. And they reset yearly. So clients can go to a therapist and say, I have these five or six sessions, let's go. So there's a lot that goes into that, but I'll just give that little definition for now. Sure. Is five or six sessions enough to do much, according no. to you? <laughs> what, what could that be expected to do? It's good for a bit of a sampling of therapy, right? So usually that includes the first session, the intake session. So obviously that's going to be some treatment planning. I need to know what a client is going through and I need to ask several questions. It's like a physical exam, but more abstract and for the mind. And a whole session you can say is spent doing that. So then you're left with four or five for interventions and something like EMDR can be very structured, but that's still a bit of a narrow window. So employee assistance programs, which aren't going through health insurance, right? That's an important distinction for the audience to know. An EAP is there to pay for support for an employee that is therapeutic, but isn't going through your health insurance. Bingo. And most of that is because health insurance is pretty broken. It's a system. So we create this entire parallel system to theoretically deal with other problems. By the time someone walks in, to your office, virtually or otherwise, what's the likelihood that they have a mild problem? People will often delay going to psychotherapy until it's reached a point where there's some real functional difficulties. So it's not mild cases that are walking in the door for you anyway. It can be. They're, they may be functioning well enough. They still have a job after all, but 
usually what ends up happening is clients are using AUP benefits will then decide, okay, I want to extend this out with my health insurance. That's very common. So as okay. a stand, EAP kind of gets people's foot, feet in the door and then they end up wanting to use their insurance benefits. But is that really the nature of what you want to do with AP? Do you want, wouldn't you want longer? So it, it's essentially a bridge to the complete course of care for many people. That's a right way of looking at it. Yes. The, you see a lot of men. Yeah, absolutely. Like dudes. <laughs> and you live in? Georgia, yeah. Georgia. And in many places, I think it, for most guys, not, I saw a tweet, I guess, on what was Twitter the other day saying, men would rather go to medical school than therapy. Yeah, it's a great meme format. There's a lot yeah. of truth to that. But there is some, I, I do think by the time someone walks into an employee assistance program to get into a therapist's office, they probably put it off. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think that pretty accurate it's been put off delayed and and worse yet if they have you know a really serious problem the chances are like that the number of sessions that was designed for is not the number of sessions that people will need correct i would say they usually want to go further because also you factor in getting to know the therapist and the time it takes to build a rapport because you just said people will delay going that includes men and you're talking to a complete stranger, whether or not that person is therapeutically trained and gifted at their craft, it's still going to take some time for someone to feel comfortable and to know that and to know that, that therapist is trustworthy. And so maybe by that sixth session or fifth or whatever with EAP, then you're feeling more comfortable than ever. And you're more comfortable to dive into the deeper aspects you're dealing with, but maybe the underlying root of the trauma that you spent those previous sessions touching just in a very brief way. How long did it take you to trust the, the first therapist you saw? I think we got a good rapport going like ab about three sessions in. She was very good. And this was, we had a good relationship, but obviously like a first session, still there's going to be that. It just feels, it feels odd when you're telling a stranger your stuff. One of the tensions I've noticed both for myself going to therapy and for my patients is the more you like your therapist right, or, ident or identify with them, the less you want them to think badly of you. I don't want to be judged. Uh -huh. Nobody does. And so like the stuff we do that's really problematic is the uh -huh. hardest to talk about. Ironically, the more likable your therapist is, uh -huh. the less likely you want them specifically to be the one judging you. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. For me at the time, I had entered the field and I you have to get therapy to go through the grad program I was in. And I found myself wanting to talk a lot about the field itself and talk to this person as an experienced clinician. I thought she was pretty likable and cool. And, and so did you get as into it as you might have if you were... You have another thing you can bullshit about, <laughs> which, yeah. which is the work, not well, necessarily I, the feelings. So I, I probably not. It was very, yeah, I get what you're saying. Because my experience is that people withhold. Yes. And, and that's 
frankly, good judgment on average. Like, how do I know I can trust this person? You don't. Mm -hmm. No, you don't know that. And especially if you actually end up liking them and having a good rapport, then if you have a problem or you do something that you're ashamed of and you really do have to talk about that, you're not going to want to. Because now the person that I like and respect and has gotten to see me getting better and doing well, and then they're going to know. Right. And so it becomes a real paradox of developing that bond of familiar warmth with someone who is supportive can then lead you to want to just bask in that and, and enjoy that person's approval or that camaraderie versus going deeper into the stuff that's uncomfortable, for sure. It's an interesting conundrum that we get in this field. And, and, and I wonder, part of what kind of batters down that wall, at least in my experience, is time. Yes. Because you need enough time to take the trust fall. I'm going to tell my therapist something real yes. this time. <laughs> and we're really going to talk about it. And, and I'll see how they react. Maybe then I'll talk about the real thing. Yeah, it's interesting because this field is very new, all things considered, especially compared to the field of medicine. So behavioral medicine is really working on a conversational model as its framework. And it's like this field has taken the place and moved into a lot of like religious and mentorship spaces that have deteriorated in the wake of our atomized, very individualized culture. And so people may find themselves enjoying talking to someone at a level that they haven't or that they don't, especially with men. So men are more isolated than ever. They're at the highest suicide risk of all time right now. The, the statistics for male suicide, it's a male epidemic right now. And so when you get some guys talking together and you have me, a trained therapist who really enjoys conversation and, and you run the risk that you'll get clients who will really enjoy that back and forth. And that's a healing element right there, feeling heard, understood. But how can you be understood if you stay surface level? And so it's a dance we do as therapists of trying to respect that a client enjoys our conversation and rapport while also realizing that we have deeper interventions like EMDR, of course, CBT, DBT, embedding those interventions in natural conversation as well. So part of the lift is just getting someone to walk in the door in the first place. The next part is getting them to feel comfortable enough to talk about anything real. And, yeah. and only then can you do a thing that might be expected to really change the underlying reality, which is part biology, part psychology, which I think are probably the same at the end of the day. Yes, but that's I, a whole process. Yes, it is. If you were working with an employer, mm -hmm. let's just pick, pick a big one and like Schmallmart, right? It's, <laughs> we'll, we'll make up a big chain that isn't Walmart, but. Look, big employer, 60,000, 100,000, million employees, something like that. And you wanted to create a culture that got people to walk into a door a little bit easier. Or the people who, what would you do? How would you create messaging in your mind that got people who needed, for example, care for trauma to come get the care that would help? A key element would have to be, and this would be really something to figure out, destigmatizing. We hear that word a lot. What does that mean? Awareness that the person wasn't going to get into any trouble with their employer for taking advantage of these benefits. It would be great if the person got, the prospective clients got to know the actual therapists that were there that could be referred, but that can't, you usually find Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So wait, Yeah. How, hold on. 
I like that a lot, also because it was my original a million years ago. If you could get to know the therapists who were available uh-huh. in a way that wasn't therapy, it's a little bit like dating. If you get to know people at the social before yeah. you have to commit to going on a date with them. This is why college is easier to meet people than other places because like you're expected to see people in class and you yeah. might end up liking them and wanting to go on a date later. And therapy is probably higher stakes than going on going out on a date. So just building yes. some familiarity with therapists, even if it's not your therapist. I, but like that might help. How would you do that? Probably some kind of an event or have the therapist be there at different meetings and share some information about what they do. Maybe get to know the therapist's personality as well, because that's a huge factor. And that's what my team did when we brought services in at scale to a really large global company. We had trainings with the managers, and then we had large meetings on topics other than therapy, COVID preparedness, how to deal with burnout, stuff that was really general. But part of the point was to make me, a psychiatrist, relatable. Not because you'll necessarily be seeing me, but because if mental health professionals and people who work together seem like someone you might be able to talk to, that was the idea. If they seem approachable or like human beings with personalities, how about that? (laughs) Yeah. So showing up essentially to the meeting and having something useful to say about another topic might be a way to build familiarity with the kinds of things therapists say. Yes. It demonstrates uh, confidence. It demonstrates the personality, puts face to a name, all those really valuable things that we expect of most other social relationships. We met on Clubhouse. Yeah. And Clubhouse was a giant test kitchen for learning how to be relatable. I, I have patients now who heard us speak on Clubhouse. That's wild. It's Actually, fun. my first prism patient is a patient who heard us on Clubhouse. That's spectacular. Wow. It is. The difference that can and, make. And so I think there is a rationale to have the team who's providing the help be known or knowable before the one-on-one helping. Yes. Is it, is, would you agree with that? I would agree with that, 100%. Be less weird. Yes, because weird and foreign and <laughs> other different, all of that can be frightening to people who, who need to go seek help. Are there other things that you imagine would be really like helpful for people in learning that they could trust or, or it might make sense to go walk into an assistance program or even their health insurance to get a therapist? Yes. So a big one is recognizing that a, a responsible, good ethical therapist will go at a pace that a client at which a client is comfortable. So I've had many clients who finally came into therapy and have told me like, I'm ready. And they expected that it would be really drilling into the deepest stuff. And it, it does need to go there with trauma healing. But we need being trauma informed as a therapist means that you respect clients' boundaries. And so you adapt things and you go. So if they're going to experience flashbacks, then you really lead up to work that could encourage that. And you build that foundation of safety before you just barrel in. And I think media and pop culture and, and depictions of therapists can can help or hinder people's 
suppositions and their expectations of therapy. But I would encourage everyone to realize that, again, a therapist with experience is going to recognize where you are and that it's better to have you there and not frighten you away. And it's just bad practice, by the way, to frighten people away by making them immediately expose themselves and their triggers and do that work before they've prepared. So you're not going to throw people to the sharks immediately. No, absolutely not. <laughs> How do you say, other than just saying that, hi, here's your employee benefit. It doesn't right. throw you to sharks. Right. You won't be eaten alive instantly by your therapist, right. which maybe is what you say. I don't know. <laughs> That's very strange. What else would you do? Like in an ideal world, you have a magic wand and you get to build the on-ramp to therapy. Let's imagine, let's talk about a, a population so we make it a little more grounded. Let's say it's first responders who we know are going to be exposed to death, dying, fire. Yes. They're going to be exposed to trauma and horrible things. And yes. so let's just imagine it's a first responder cohort and it's their employer, the county or whatever. H how do you build a program to, to, with them? For one thing... I like that idea of getting another therapist. So what would the therapist talk about maybe in a meeting beforehand? Some of the impact of trauma in a very grounded way that shows that it's a, a real issue. It can impact your work. It can impact your functioning. It's not fake. It's It goes beyond just a small workplace frustration, right? And it's showing competence, maybe incorporating some humor because in a lot of first responder culture, there's gallows humor, there's dark humor, and a therapist who can hang with that and isn't going to come in and try to potentially edit the personalities of the first responders or seem disconnected from that, right? That's going to be huge because if, you feel dis if they think that you're disconnected from their world, they're going to wonder how you can help them. Do you really get it? And so having some conversations beforehand about trauma and being able to show your personality as a therapist and that you're actually qualified to talk with them is going to be crucial. In, in a way, I think, did you see the show Billions? Oh, and I never finished it, but I know, we'll see if I'm conversational with. It's good. So Wendy Rhodes is the psychiatrist on staff at this hedge fund. Now, look, they only have one because it's easier for a TV show and they don't have a whole EAP. She's the whole thing. But she's helping them with their day-to-day -day problems as traders, essentially. The Mets in real life did this with Dr. Jonathan Fader. He was a psychologist. He would have everyone on the Mets come and see him regularly. Yes. About performance. Now, this was a great move because everybody goes into the office. So nobody knows what you're going into the office to talk about. You're not self-selecting and no one else on the team can go, yo, he went and talked to Dr. F. Yes. Genius. What's wrong? Everybody had to talk to Dr. F. I love that move. Yes. And so that created a smokescreen, essentially, of performance enhancement and trust building. And so he had just a structure in place to create normalization about talking to the therapist, because everyone talked to the therapist about something. Okay. And so that when a real problem came up, you could talk about it and no one would know the difference. Right. Make it completely destigmatized. Have everyone go in and make it normal to talk to the psychologist. I love that approach. Now that's a it's a it's a hard thing to do individually. It's expensive, but baseball players are expensive. From a systems perspective, if you have a lot of therapists and a lot of meetings and having them say something useful, even if it's not about therapy. I have plenty of things to say about management of whatever, because I can say something to you. But the whole point is just to make you less weird. More relatable. 
connected. I'm just a guy drinking coffee and showing it in the video so people know, just like everyone else, I drink my coffee in the morning. Mm. How relatable. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you work at a tea company and then... Competitor. Yeah. Anything else? If you were were just dreaming big, how would you do it? Okay, so we've got out there that it's going to be... There's going to be some time to connect. I would really want to meet with some of the people and hear what they think could be most useful from the company, like the employees on what they're stressed about, what they think could be useful from a therapist there. So it's actually some- doing an assessment just of the company culture. Absolutely. Not just the person. And that is a very low anxiety, I mean, depending on the company, kind of thing to do because you're asking about the problems and the experience of working there and not what's wrong with you. What's happening here? What's the process? What's going wrong in the culture? That's a, That will cause people to be significantly less closed off than when you get super personal. Tell me about your workplace. Yes. So I can do an intake for your company. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I, I This has been really helpful. And, and thank you for spending the time having the conversation with me. Absolutely. This was a pleasure. It's always great to get the wheels turning on new ways to make therapy relevant and not weird. How about that? I like that. This has been the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. I'm Dr. Owen Muir, and joining me is... Jeremy Fox. Licensed professional counselor and good friend.